We'll be continuing our series, which is entitled, A Clear Conscience Toward God and Men. A Clear Conscience Toward God and Men. We have for some weeks now been considering the vital issue of conscience. It's a central part of the Christian life, and yet, unfortunately, something that's not addressed very often. And that very neglect uh, weakens our walk with the living God, and it also weakens his churches. So it is my hope and my prayer as we continue to work through uh, these passages that we will come to a clear and, uh, and I trust, a living, a living practice of keeping a clear conscience before God. We're going to read Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 15. We'll be focusing this morning on portions of verses 13, 14, and 15. If you would please stand with me one more time, we will stand in the presence of our God as we hear his word. Chapter 14, verse 1, this is the word of God. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks, and he that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and none no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why? Dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess to God. So then every one of us, 
Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not, therefore, judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus. There is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Amen. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. Let's unite our hearts in prayer. O our blessed and holy Father, How we praise thy name today. Lord, I thank thee for those of thy people that thou hast gathered in this place. We thank thee that across the world from early this morning and until tonight, thy people will gather in places we don't even know. And they will lift up their voices in praise, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They will magnify thee in prayer. They will hear the word of God read and preached. And they will minister the ordinances. They will use the means of grace to engage with thee, to praise thee, to adore thee. Oh God, how I pray our hearts would be fixed on that holy endeavor this morning. Father, I do pray that this is not just another ho-hum Sunday morning, I pray, O righteous God, that we have arisen from sleep, that we have sought thy face, that our hearts are kindled with love for thee, and that we have gathered in the name of Christ Jesus, our blessed Lord, to praise and extol and honor thee. O God, pour out thy spirit. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Fill us with that spirit, and fill us with that love that cast out fear. Mighty God, there are lost ones here. We pray that by thy power, by the grace, and by the strength and power of the world to come, thou wouldst open their eyes, raise them from their death to see their need of Christ, and grant them repentance and faith in the Savior. Oh, God, how I pray for thy people. Father, we pray that thou wouldst inhabit our praises. Fill us this morning. Sanctify thy people. Draw near to us. Draw near. Thou hast promised, if we draw nigh unto thee, thou wilt draw nigh unto us. We want to know that we've met with God this morning. Come by thy power, the power of the flesh, will carry none of us. I pray, O God, that thy spirit would now open our ears, open our eyes to see and understand thy truth, and may we live in it. The glorious praise of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.
Christ Jesus is the head over all things to the church. He speaks to us through Paul's letter to the Romans. We want to hear his voice today. That spirit-breathed document spins 11 chapters setting forth several themes. The primary theme of the book is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of God into salvation. Along with that, two other themes are obvious. One, the gospel for Jew and Gentile. And two, God's eternal purpose for Jew and Gentile. Then chapters 12 through 15 describe practical matters for Jew and Gentile. Why? The church at Rome was divided. That's why. And Paul wanted to heal that division. Jew and Gentile. A very powerful theme throughout this great letter. The most important issue that faced the early church was this. How did God's old covenant people and their scriptures relate to the new covenant people of God and their scriptures? Believing Jews at Rome and perhaps others were convinced that they were still bound to the Jewish ceremonial law. After all, it was the word of God. It seems they believed that they could not eat meat or drink wine for fear of contamination by idolatry. There may have been other reasons, but they're abstaining from meat and they're abstaining from wine. They still believe themselves bound to observe certain Jewish holy days. And Paul considered them weak in the faith. It's Paul that's labeling them that way. Paul the Jew. Paul the converted Jew. Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. He loved his brethren. He loved the kindred Jewish. But he understood that their covenant had passed away. So Paul considered them weak in the faith, that is, weak in their understanding of gospel liberty. At the heart of the controversies between Jew and Gentile lay a vital matter. Conscience. Conscience. In the love of Jew and Gentile, Paul deals with conscience controversies. That's what chapter 14 and most of chapter 15 is about. It's what we call conscience controversies. And while dealing with conscience, Paul broaches the subject of stumbling blocks. We have finally worked our way back to that subject. We return to our message, the dreadful sin of stumbling a believer. The dreadful sin of stumbling a believer. 
This is part eight. And may our Heavenly Father, our loving Heavenly Father, bless us with the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. May the eyes of our understanding be enlightened that we might know the exceeding greatness of His presence and power to us who believe. And may He inflame us with greater love for the Lord Jesus Christ and His people. So we've been under one major head for a good while now. And it's this. What are the Holy Spirit's primary lessons in chapter 14? Uh, Chapter 14 and chapter 15, like almost every chapter in the letter to the Romans, is rich, and we could spend much more time in in it, but uh, we've been trying to stay on our subject of conscience, so that anchors me back to at least some briefer thoughts here and there. Now, we've learned that Romans, listen carefully, I believe this to be one of the most mispreached or neglected chapters in the entire epistle. Now, that is to my experience. That may not be the way it is. But I can certainly say the truths enfolded here are vital. Paul has been building up to this through the whole letter. So we've learned that Romans 14 does not address the subject of primary doctrine, such as the Trinity, the true deity, the true humanity of Christ Jesus, the blood atonement and uh, resurrection of Christ, etc. Neither does it address secondary doctrine. So don't take the principles that he's laying out here and apply them to arguments about the Trinity. They don't apply. This is conscience controversies. Secondary doctrines, by the way, could be things like the proper subjects of baptism, the time of Christ's return, various forms of church government. The Lord's people have been arguing about these things for centuries, centuries. They're not directly connected to the gospel. However, having said that, I want to rush up as quickly as possible and say, if it's a doctrine in God's word, it's important. And we need to do everything that we can to make sure that we what we understand and believe to be the doctrine laid out from Genesis to Revelation is indeed in harmony with Genesis to Revelation. So Romans 14 addresses what we would call a third category of doctrine. Because we use the terms primary or secondary or conscience controversies, it does not mean that one of them is unimportant. Conscience controversies are about things that God's word neither commands or for, nor forbids generally. There are times when doctrinal issues 
that impinge upon our daily living have to be hammered through carefully. You get the wrong view of sanctification, you're not going to live to the glory of God even though you think you are. But we now briefly review the primary lessons that we've learned. You'll see on your outline, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. This teaches that Christ's congregations are usually made up of strong and weak consciences. The strong, primarily Gentiles, must welcome the weak, primarily Jews, but not to disputes over doubtful things, not to come and argue about things that are matters of conscience. Number 2, 14, verses 3 and 4 teach that God receives his children whether strong or weak of conscience. You're not a believer because you have a strong conscience or a weak conscience. You are a believer because you have been born of God's spirit. You have repented of your sins and you have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. All believers are God's servants. Therefore, we belong to God. We're His. We are His blood-bought property. We have no business then looking down on or judging God's servants in conscience controversies. Number three. Verse 5 teaches that all believers must be fully persuaded of why they believe what they believe. We must earnestly seek God's face and diligently study a matter until we are reasonably convinced of why we believe what we believe in a conscience controversy. Am I sinning against God if I don't homeschool? Am I sinning against God if I send my children to public school? Depends on the congregation you're in. You'll hear different answers to that. That's a matter of conscience. That is a matter of conscience. It's not unimportant. It has consequences. Our nation and where it is right now should make that obvious. You and I are not the lords of each other's conscience. You are not your own. You are, the, are Christ's blood-bought property. So assume, as Paul does here, assume that your brother who disagrees with you is seeking God's glory. Now, that's not your nature. It's not mine either. But you know this. I know why they take that position. I know why they believe what they believe. They want to be as close to the world as they can without going to hell. Well, internalize the fact that you are going to die to your Lord. Not to me, not to Pastor Clarence, not to the congregation, but to the Lord whose possession you are. 
You live to him. You die to him. We are not the Lord. We are not the Lord of one another's consciences. Number five, chapter 14, verses 10 through 13a, meaning the first part of that verse. These teach that all believers will give account of their lives to Jesus Christ in the day of judgment. This is Paul's argument. Stop judging each other. There's a judge that we're all going to stand before. Jesus is not only the Lord of all, he is the judge of all. We must not judge one another in conscience matters because we're all going to stand before Jesus the judge. You and I don't know everything. He does. He will judge properly. He will judge with perfect wisdom. You and I don't do that well. Now that brings us to our next major head this morning. Chapter 14, verses 13b through 15. This portion teaches that we must not let our liberty, listen, that we must not let our liberty destroy a weaker believer. That is your responsibility. Listen, we're all infected with the religion of our nation. Hey, I'm in my space, stay out of my space. You think this or you think that about what I do? I I don't care. What you see is what you get. That's a religion in the South. But it's got no roots in the Bible whatsoever. Paul says, Let us not, therefore, judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. That's a remarkable argument. We're going to press on. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Now, it's very easy for us to miss what Paul just said. He's saying you're disobeying Christ and you're not acting in love. If your brother is grieved with what you're eating, you are not walking in love. Let us consider these spirit-breathed words very carefully. Four things we want to look at. The first one is Paul's idea. (laughs) Well, I should say the Holy Spirit's idea. Stop illegitimately judging. Stop. As we have seen, the first half of verse 13 says, Let us not therefore judge one another any more. Anymore. Now, parents, when you say, don't do that anymore, are you telling your children that, ah, well, let's wait a day or two and you can take a shot at it again? Is that what you're saying? Or are you saying, stop this activity in this house? That's what Paul's saying. 
He's saying in God's house, in Jesus' church, his congregations. Stop this. Paul is not speaking of primary or secondary doctrine. He's not speaking of biblically defined sin. Biblically defined sin. He is speaking of actions that are not moral or immoral of themselves. In this case, eating, drinking, and observing religious days according to Jewish ceremonial law. He doesn't say, what's the matter with you Jews? I'm a Jew. I get it. Why don't you get it? We're in the new covenant. You're not under the ceremonial law anymore. What's the matter with you guys? He doesn't do that. There's so much love in Paul. He loves his racial brethren. But he views them as the weak ones in this conscience controversy. We can't eat that. We can't drink that. Uh, and you guys ought to be celebrating this, this day with us. And the Gentiles, who were never under the ceremonial law, were saying, uh, no. And looking down on them. Paul never taught us anything like that. This is not the gospel. This is not new covenant. Paul is loving both sides of this dispute. And he's handling them very carefully. You know why? Because he loves Jesus and because he loves Jesus' people. He knows that Christ prayed for unity among his people. I mean, as I've said before, we should all be thinking, Oh, Lord, by the power of thy spirit, help me to be an answer to that prayer. Help me to be a peacemaker in the congregation where I was. I mentioned... To our staff this week, if, if any of you still look at the news, if, if you looked at the news, uh, one of the most important things in the world was the fact that Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. You know, there's an earth-shaking event. We've had it for days. But I, I, I saw a video on, on the internet by a Baptist preacher, and he was saying, you know, now watch this. And Will Smith slapped Chris Rock pretty hard. And the very first thing that the Baptist minister said, minister said was, <clears throat> looks like a Baptist business meeting. Okay, now, why would that be the first thing out of his mouth so fast? Because of the history of God's people. Because there's a reality to that sad, amusing statement. To some of us, we would realize it's not amusing. But when something that's wrong becomes second nature, we can really joke about it. When we should be appalled by it. 
God's people are supposed to get along, but not just with grit teeth. They are to love one another. They are to love one another as God describes love in his word. You can't truly understand God's love unless you understand his law. Paul says that right here in Romans 13. We'll give a few minutes to that in just a few moments. But all of us have been poisoned by Hollywood's idea of love. We've all been poisoned by fleshly takes on love. God's people are supposed to love each other according to the word of God or it's not love. It might be affectionate like, but it's not love. So, <clears throat> the Jews did not in Rome did not seem to understand the liberty from the ceremonial law that Jesus and the new covenant have brought. We must also remember a, a, another very important matter. Paul is not banning every concept of judgment. Now, that's about the only verse that modern American culture likes to believe. Don't judge me, right? You can't judge me. God judges me. And they don't believe that because if they did, they'd stop talking about what they want to do and submit themselves to his word. They don't ever do that. They just want Christians to get off their back. You can't judge me. Well, that in itself could be a sermon. But Paul is not, again, there's a context here. There is a context. There is a judging by the weaker of those who are eating. And there is a condescension. There is a despising by those who have the liberty to eat looking down on those Jews. That's an ugly scene, isn't it? Judgment and despising. Let me ask you, whose kingdom does that sound more like? Jesus' kingdom or Satan's kingdom? You need to answer that. Paul is not banning every concept of judgment. When the Pharisees accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, which he never did, God's moral covenant law, Jesus replied, Moses, therefore, gave unto you circumcision. This is by the law. Not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers and the covenants that God made with the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man that's work you know you're actually doing something now jesus is reasoning beautifully here oh that we all learned how to reason like this but if a man on the sabbath day receives circumcision that the law of moses should not be broken are ye angry at me because i have made a man every whit whole On the Sabbath day, I've touched a body that was in desperate need, more important than your ox that falls into the ditch, and you'll go pull him out, right? right? You fellas 
will circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And yet you're troubled that I've healed a man. What was Jesus reasoning from? The word of God. That's why his reasoning is sound. He wasn't just fired up about an emotional attachment, (laughs) which is what a lot of our arguments are about. So Jesus then makes this amazing statement to them. Judge not according to to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. If we are not sizing something up by the word of God, it's quite likely we're not going to evaluate it the right way. You and I judge things every day, all through the day. I won't pretend that you know what it's like to be in my head, and I won't do that to you. But I will say this, since we're all human beings, I know that throughout the day, you look at people, you look at events, you look at food, you look at your clothes, you look at things all around you, and you go, good, bad, good, bad. Mm-mm. Oh, you know, she said this yesterday. He did that yesterday. I can't believe it. Well, you've just judged them. Yep. Is that not so? You do it all day, every day. So do I. There's a place for legitimate judgment. What Paul is saying is that what's going on at Rome is illegitimate. Righteous judgment means drawing our conclusions by a proper interpretation of Scripture. A proper understanding... Oh, don't drift right now. <laughs> if the boat of your mind is, uh, is drifting away from the dock, pull, pull it back in for a moment. Listen carefully. Righteous judgment means drawing the conclusions by a proper interpretation of Scripture. Not just a verse pulled out of context to make your argument. Number two, a proper understanding of the situation. How can you evaluate something that you don't know 10% of? But we do it. And the tragedy is that God's people do it. Not only should you have a proper understanding of the situation, which very often many of us don't. We just heard something, and it fired us up, and it involved those two people. And I like him, but I don't like the other one. And so I'm willing to believe a bald-faced lie about that fellow. Because somebody tells me, you know what he did. You know what he was up to. You know what he was thinking. You know why he's doing it, don't you? I sure do. And I, I knew he was that kind of person. Oh, you know you've done that. And very often, you haven't even looked into the situation to find out if it ever even happened. God hates that. Because it's not truth. We're to traffic in the truth. For years, Christians everywhere would send me 
emails. Oh, pray for this poor child. This is what happened to her. And then, then it, uh, for years, I would do that. It would fill up my email box. This is true. And then I check into it. And very often, it was from a, a story clipped from a newspaper 20 years ago. Because there are people out there that just love to find ways to waste your time and lying to you. Like the media. They just love to lie to you. I used to be in the media. I know how they function. But we'll listen. This happened today. Mm. You just say, well, if that happened, I'll pray for them. But I don't know that it did. I don't know that this senator said that. I don't know that this congressman was with this woman. I don't know that, and you don't either. But it came over the television. It has to be true. No. In God's church, we should be traffickers in truth. If someone comes to you and says something about a member, and it's something that would imply deficient character, you say, oh, okay. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Wow. But I kind of figured it, you know. Or do you say, how do you know that? How do you know that? Who told you that? Why did they tell you and why are you telling me? Do we ever react like that? I can tell you there have been times here when that hasn't happened when it should have. Why are you saying this about that member? Why are you saying this about that elder? Why are you saying this when you haven't even looked into it? Somebody you know has just told you. People that you know can pass on false information without thinking about it. I've done it. I imagine you have. God doesn't like it in his congregation. He wants his people to traffic in truth. And by the way, if you have something to say to me, if you have anything to say to a, a member of this congregation or even someone who just visits, why? Say it to us. Don't say it to five other people. I'm just trying to get prayer support. You want prayer support? Come talk and pray with me. Okay. Brethren, do we understand that this is like real life? Why do churches shatter all the time? Because people don't obey Jesus, the head of the church. They don't guard their mouths like they're commanded to. They don't pass on the information that they're commanded to. They don't discern. They don't ask. They don't find out. But then they can make up their minds. One of the most mature things I have heard came from a non-member. <clears throat> it was the middle of a controversy. And this particular person had taken sides. That's always what Satan wants. And in a discussion with this particular person, he said, but you know, I got to thinking about it and praying about it. And I realized I'd only heard part of the story. I hadn't talked to you. I hadn't talked to that person. I hadn't talked to this person. And I realized... I was jumping to a conclusion that I had no reason to make. Now, you know what? Many of us would find that out if we'd obey Jesus. You've got a problem with anybody, go to them first. 
go to them first. And make sure when you're going, you've got a biblically defined issue to talk with them about. Righteous judgment, I repeat, means drawing our conclusions by a proper interpretation of Scripture, a proper understanding of the situation, and a proper application to the situation. We must come to Scripture with these three questions. Now, many of you have heard this before, but I delight in repeating it. You must come to Scripture with these three questions. One, what does it say? Now, make sure you know what it says. I've been on the planet long enough to have people come to me on a regular basis and say, um, um, you know that place in the Bible where it says, um, I don't know how it goes, but it's something like this. And they're building a case on it. Is that wise? No. Well, I'm so glad I heard a no. <laughs> Thank you. There's times you can talk back. But what does it say? I, I use this, this um, for those who are married. I'm sure most of you have probably never had an argument with your spouse. But in the event that you have, has there ever been a situation where you said, no, but no, I know I said that, but this is what I meant. Well, you are indeed making my case. First, you've got to know what was said. And if you don't, why do you want to get in the argument? Number two, what does it mean? What it says and what it means is a vital distinction. Number three, how do I apply it? How do I apply it? You can get what it says. You can get what it means. And then completely apply it the wrong way. All three steps are essential, especially in conscience controversies. All right. Well, those are simple questions, but they are difficult to answer. Why? <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> because of our sinful flesh. Here God has given us an infallible word. And he's given it to a group of infallible. Uh, he's given us an infallible word. And he's given it to a group of fallible interpreters. Now if you don't tuck that away in your conscience. You're going to think that the way you've looked at something is just the way it is. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's way off. And, and that's a game of Russian roulette that I don't like. <clears throat> we have sinful flesh. The second problem is ignorance of Scripture. I mean, I, I have had to do marriage counseling. By the way, I don't want to give the wrong impression. I was reproved about this, and, and I do, and, and I... I took that reproof. From time to time, I say things about marriage counseling that would give the impression that I don't want to do it. Therefore, if you have a problem, you're not going to come to me or perhaps to, to Pastor Clarence. <clears throat> but my point is this. 
I often say things about that because I'm grieved in a, in a group of people that say, oh, Bible? Mm, boy, I believe that. Good. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. <clears throat> now, you would think that that would be the first passage that husbands would want to memorize. But you know what they know, even when they don't know this one? Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Like that's the only verse in the New Testament. And for selfish and fleshy men, it becomes a way to dominate the house. Uh, uh, you know what the Bible says? you got to submit. you got it. You're not going to break God's word, are you? Hmm. Well, you happen to be at this moment. Okay. These things are vital. Conscience controversies are real. And we have to deal with them in very real and very specific ways. We must. So, why are those questions, those three questions, so hard to answer? Not only our sinful flesh and our ignorance of Scripture, but our spiritual warfare with demons. Do you understand you're in a battle? Look at your culture. Look at your, well, look at your culture. Uh, but look, look, look at our country today. What are you seeing? Well, <clears throat> what you're seeing is the successful attack of hell upon this country. Or maybe a better way of saying it is a successful attack of Satan and his hordes upon this country. And one of the reasons for that, and I say this with sorrow, is because the churches are almost impotent. They do not realize, they do not recognize, and therefore they do not war like God has commanded them to. They don't war. They just get the five or six or seven or ten little things that we don't do. And we look at the people down the street and go, they do them, but we don't. Jesus prayed that we would be one. I'm not talking about a false worldly ecumenism. But I am saying we are called to unity. How are we doing with that? And what's your basis for it? And do you know whether or not you are approaching these things, either with your flesh or your ignorance or the powers of darkness? Jesus said, the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Man. We have Christ. We have his word. We have his spirit. We have one another. Why isn't it working so well? Because we don't know how to hammer through conscience controversies. Very often we're not even sure. Many can't even defend the basics of the faith. I'm not saying this to be hateful. I'm not saying this to be judgmental. I'm saying, do you smell the fire of the churches of this nature, a nation burning? 
They start the fire from the inside. It's not the enemies on the outside. They disobey the Christ who commands us to unity. He's being ecumenical. He's telling you what Jesus Christ said. Now, how are you working that out? Is it just from your scheme? Or are you looking at this book enough to say, okay, I can look at this and I can determine that isn't what the scriptures teach. We just need to be humble when we do that. I'm not saying we should embrace error. I would, I would encourage all of you to flee from Rome. Now, number two, <clears throat> stop illegitimately judging. Number two, do not stumble other believers. Now, this is where it starts getting thick. In the next few weeks, we're going to get down and put out issues that... Um, that are real life issues and we all need to ask ourselves am I stumbling others it's really easy to say oh, he's stumbling everybody she's stumbling everybody how about me can I look in the mirror of God's word and say I'm handling this in a way that brings glory to Christ do not stumble other believers Paul continues he says stop judging Stop. But then he says, but judge this rather. <laughs> you want to judge? Well, I got something for you to judge. He says that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in a brother's way. Now, I lovingly, lovingly, you thought I was speaking in tongues. No. I want to say lovingly. I want to press you and me. Do we understand the serious, the serious words Paul just uttered? They're very serious. Judge this, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. His meaning is this, something like this. Stop judging one another in conscience controversies. Stop it altogether. If you are looking for something to judge, judge this. Judge your own thoughts, words, and deeds in such a way that you do not cause your brothers and sisters to stumble into sin. He puts the responsibility for how others are doing on us. It's not the only responsibility. Let's be clear. But it's a real responsibility. The subject of stumbling blocks is crucial to Paul's view of the Christian life. And yet it seems that many professing Christians do not take that issue seriously. Or they do not understand it clearly enough to avoid it. So we, we introduce this subject in our sermons on 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. But let me, let me define 
stumbling blocks again and we'll, we'll stop for the day since we've got baptism in the Lord's Supper still coming. Remember, for those of you that have been here, James Durham, he was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor and theologian in the 1600s. He defined a, stum- a stumbling block for us. A scandal or offense is literally a stumbling block. Now, he's talking about the Greek behind those words. Today, a scandal is something that we hear about a a congressman or a celebrity of some sort or something going on in the school system. There's some kind of a scandal, but the idea of scandal here comes from the Greek, skandalizo, and it means making an opportunity for someone to sin. It's the same thing for the word offense. Most of the time we think of offense, oh, you you offended me. You wore this, you said that, you watched this, you you looked at this. And it's like, well, that's not how Paul's using it. The scriptures do use it in a few places that way to be displeased, to be angered by something someone has done. But when Paul talks about it here, he's talking about making the occasion for someone to sin either causing them to sin, can we do that? We can. Or making occasion, doing something that erupts in other people's sinning. We can all do it. I would be willing to say we have all done it. But very often... We were thinking of Romans 14 is about, uh, I, I have liberty to listen to this band. I have liberty to uh, go to the movies. That's, I mean, that's the arguments I've heard for 30 years. That's rarely what this thing's about. It's about loving Christ and loving his people so that you care for their conscience and that you do what you can in word and deed to build them up and to avoid causing them or giving the opportunity for sin. That's what Paul's talking about. He's concerned that the strong ones Look down on those Jews that are still thinking, I need to do this because Moses said this. It's God's word. He doesn't jump on those Jews. What's really interesting is if you read this chapter over and over and over, you will begin to realize Paul the apostle to the Gentiles is in agreement with the Gentiles as being strong. They understand the new covenant and that they are not, they never were bound to the Jewish law. But even though he understands that, he also knows what those Jews are thinking because he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And he says, now these fellows are trying to glorify God and and these are trying to glorify God. Now, be careful with your liberty that you don't destroy one of these. He cares for the weak ones. Well, Durham 
says it this way, a scandal or offense is literally a stumbling block. It is caused when something is said or done in a way that leads someone to sin or hinders their spiritual life. Or hinders their spiritual life. The deed or word is not necessarily sinful in and of itself, but it makes someone to stumble in their spiritual life because of its circumstances. It may be something that's completely true, but it may be handled entirely in the wrong way. And you may cause someone to sin sin in that way. But it makes someone to stumble in their spiritual life because of the circumstances, namely that it was done at such a time, timing is important, in such a place, might have been right in the middle of the congregation, which maybe being in the living room would have been a better thing. It also has to do with such a person. Years ago, a very well-known personality among those who were laboring for family reform fell into a horrific sin with a young woman. Thousands of young people walked away from what they'd been taught when he fell. There were Children in this congregation that walked outside and wept at their houses when they heard the news. Is that a stumbling block? It surely was. And we could go on. And we will. But not today. So, a a scandal is irrespective of whether anyone is actually caused to stumble or whether the person actually intended to offend. I have found out as a pastor. I can do something that I entirely meant one way, and someone took it completely differently. Completely differently. And was grieved. Grieved to the point of sin, sinful attitude. I had a hand in that. We are all responsible for any of the sins that we commit. Are we clear on that? If, let's say a woman, and we'll talk about men next week. Let's say a woman wears something immodest into the congregation. All right. There may be some young men that really begin to struggle. Maybe some old men that begin to struggle. Because they're seeing something they're not used to seeing in the congregation. And it's not the kind of thing that they fill their mind looking at women's bodies. It's not the diet that they live on. Now, if she wears something knowingly or unknowingly, she could cause someone to fall into sin. Is it his fault? Yes. From top to bottom, it's his fault. But she had a hand in it. That's the way it is with us. We can say and do things that cause people to stumble. It 
hinders their faith. It besmirches their conscience. It stains their walk. And we weren't even intending offense. So, brethren, this is a very important matter. We will continue, God willing, next week. Let me simply say, to stumble a believer is not love, it's hate. To stumble a believer is not building, it's destroying. So, we need to love our fellow brethren who disagree with us and care about their conscience till we've got a really good picture of what it is he or she is really saying. Okay? That brings glory to Christ because then we're attempting to maintain the unity he prayed for. It's a dreadful sin to stumble a believer. Father in heaven, we praise and thank thee for thy infinite wisdom and goodness. I thank thee for this day. I thank thee for this worship service. I thank thee for those that thou hast brought here. And Lord, now as we go to the the wonderful ordinances that thou hast given us, I pray that we bring glory and praise and honor, exaltation to thee and much edification to thy people. In Jesus' name, amen. We will be changing for the baptism. After the baptism, we will have the Lord's Supper. Thank <clears throat> you.